1st of December. I uh, hope you appreciate a little bit of a Kiwi humor and that movie that they made down there called What We Do in the Shadows, uh, Sad Group of Vampires. Uh, we've also tried to set the table for you, not only with this video, but with the one at the beginning with Benet Brown and Win Win Winfred. Winfred. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey. Uh, Winfred. Oh, okay. Anyway. Also, the song we did by Alicia Cara also helps, I think, set the stage for uh, the fact that we often wrestle with standards that the world's put on us, uh, and uh, sometimes we fail to uh, recognize that we don't have to measure up to those. So let me just pray for our time. We're going to get into God's Word a little bit and see what He has to say for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love for us. Thanks for those folks who have ventured out. We pray that you have prepared something special for them that even I don't know about, something that they need to hear this morning. Pray that you would change us from our time with you. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Well, we've got a lot to cover this morning. So just a quick review for those of you who are new. We've been doing a series called The Forgotten War, looking at the issue of spiritual warfare. We'll finish this in the first half of January. Uh, we'll take a couple-week break to do uh, Christmas stuff the next couple of weeks. But the first week, uh, just, so you don't know, just so you know, what we did is we kind of covered the fact that there actually is a war. Uh, and the fact that most people do not know that there's a war, it's, uh, it's most people are blinded to the fact. And so we talked about that. The second week we talked about uh, how it spills over this war that's being waged against God by Satan. He's got uh, planet Earth as this kind of base and he's, uh, it's messing up things down here as well. He's got control of sort of the system that operates and he has doing things to attack our minds. We talked about that last week. I want to do it, uh, the second part of that message where he's talk, we're talking about the lies that Satan can work into our minds and have us uh, basically derailed. As Christians basically become casualties of war, lost people continue to stay blind, worrying about all these other issues that are secondary, really, in terms of the big picture. Okay, so uh, one of the things we saw last week was that as Satan uh, attacks us, he will do four basic things. He will... Uh, he will, he, will, he will sow doubts in our mind about what uh, God has said and about what God is and whether God is good. He will then, once he's got us kind of teetering on the brink, he will basically challenge God's truth straight up. And what he also will do is a final, final blow. He will never, ever, ever tell you what the true consequences are of basically going apart from God. So those are the methods he will use against all kinds of people. Uh, so what we're going to do today, looking at another type of attack as he gets into our minds and messes with us, uh, I think before we're done, you're going to agree that this thing we're going to talk about today is one of the most powerful uh, influences on our souls and our minds. And to get there, we're going to start in the uh, second chapter of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Just a couple of verses. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, which he helped plant. Uh, it's, uh, Corinth is actually now modern day Greece. He says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Uh, nope, not bombs and missiles and stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Again, that's what he's writing to the church there, the Christians there, warning about the attack our spiritual enemy will launch against our minds. And he knows something. He knows that what we believe will govern what we do. 
right? What we believe to be true will govern what we actually do. If uh, your mind believes, I think I got a great, a great picture. If your mind believes that this plane will safely carry you to Miami, you will get on it. But if your mind does not believe that this plane will carry you safely to Miami, you will not. What you believe will govern what you do. And Paul says that the real spiritual battlefield for you and me happens between our ears, in our minds, for what we will believe or not believe. These strongholds, these fortified positions that the enemy establishes in our minds can be destroyed, Paul says in Corinthians, by taking every thought captive as we seek to be obedient to Christ. Now, when Paul uses the term strongholds, he's talking about something that keeps people uh, in a sort of bondage, right? That they've got real problems breaking free from. Maybe you uh, need to break free from your cat. If so, I, I strongly encourage you to do that. But, but that's understandable. You need to do that. But maybe not. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a mindset of hopelessness regarding some habit or a way of thinking. And you just kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, it can never change. We're always going to be struggling with this. It's always going to be grappling onto us and controlling us. It's like you're being held as a hostage and you lose all hope of ever being rescued or released. So today we're going to talk about that part of the forgotten war where Satan attacks the mind by telling you lies about yourself that are absolutely, fundamentally not true. But if believed, they will result in you and me being held captive. To check this out, let's, we're going to go back to the book we've been digging into for the last two weeks, the book of Genesis, uh, where we saw uh, Satan comes to the woman, as she was known at this point in the book. We called her Eve, but she's not really named Eve yet. That comes later. That's going to be important as we wrap this message up, but I'll get to that later. But here's what he does. He refocuses our attention. All the trees in the entire uh, Garden of Eden that God has made were available to her, right? Uh, but he focuses her attention on the one that God said you shouldn't eat of that one because in the day you eat of that one, you will die. Then once he has her kind of thinking about that, he sows doubts in her mind about whether God is good or not. You know, why is God holding this back from you? Why would God want to uh, restrain you from having, you know, the full experience of being a human being or all that kind of stuff? He eventually kind of, once he has her teetering more, he basically says, God's a liar. God said you're going to die if you eat this. He says you're not going to die. Flat out a contradiction of what God said. And then he also you know, seals the deal by lying about the real consequences of what's going to happen as she moves out. But to get the full brunt of what we're going to be dealing with today, I want to go back to uh, the way we were, for those of you old enough to remember this movie, uh, before the fall of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2. God has a great relationship with these, this couple in the Garden of Eden. Uh, as she was known at the time, I said the woman. And he performs the first wedding ever in the history of the globe. And here's what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You may now kiss the bride. Basically, I mean, I think that's what he said. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See the word ashamed, right? I'm not making that up. It's right there. God goes out of his way to highlight that they were naked and they, they were not ashamed. They felt no shame. They felt perfectly good about themselves. Everything was good. Why not? They were in a relationship with God, an unconditional love with him, a relationship with their spouse, unconditional love with each other. They were thinking of the best of each other, trying to do the best for each other. It was awesome. But look what happens immediately after, in Genesis 3, 
they sin by doing the one thing that God told them not to do or they would die, by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what happened. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and things fall apart. This is key. Before sin, they were naked and were not ashamed. Sin enters the fray. Now they're still naked, right? But somehow they know it, and they're ashamed. And watch the first thing that they do as a result of shame. They hide themselves from each other. Something happened to their relationship. The spiritual light goes out, and the physical side of their relationship takes on a prominence it never had before. They knew that they were naked. That's the knowledge for which they traded paradise for. That's the knowledge they traded their daily fellowship with God for. That's the knowledge that they basically forsook life everlasting for. Now when the woman sees Adam, she sees him differently. She sees herself differently. The way he looks at her is different And she sees herself suddenly not quite the same as it was before. Suddenly when he sees her and wants her, it's not all that loving. It's kind of selfish. And her nakedness, come on guys, we know this, right? Don't you imagine that the original woman that God created was the most gorgeous specimen of female whatever on the world ever seen, right? She senses things are off. She's questioning him. She's questioning herself. All kinds of weird stuff taking place in those minds. Innocence gone. Trust dissolves into distrust. Harmony to alienation. Their relationship is shattered. So, hide. And their shade leads them to hide from God too. Who would come every day and hang out with them in the garden. Here's what happens. Genesis 3, chapter 8. And they, Adam and the woman, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Typical. Every day he did this. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Like he couldn't find them. He made all the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. The relationship with God shattered as well. Funny, isn't it, how Satan never actually mentioned that as a consequence? So, shame is the word we're going to spend our time on today. A powerful, emotional force that acts upon your soul and your mind. Almost more powerful than anything else. And when you see something in Scripture that's mentioned for the very first time, often it is that passage that is the key to understanding the mind of God on that issue. And this passage... Right here is the first mention of shame. And it causes them to hide, to cover, to fear, to deceive, and to want to be, uh, avoid being known. Shame can afflict everybody. My guess is it has afflicted everybody, even in this room. So even if you're not a Christ follower here this morning, I just ask you to follow along and see if the stuff we're talking about does not ring true even in your own life. Normally when we think of shame, right, we think of uh, being embarrassed, uh, humiliated, somehow being in disgrace. Uh, In this particular case, the shame comes because Adam and the woman have sinned. That is one angle of shame. 
but we also live, as we know from the first two messages here, in a world system governed by Satan that has set standards for us. And just in case you think God's enemy is your buddy, they're standards you cannot live up to. And thus, they bring shame into our lives. Let me just give you a few of those. Isn't it a shame that people are ashamed about their looks? I mean, the hit movie right now, Wonder, right, is all about the life of a kid who does not meet the world's standards for good looks. Is it not a shame that he was made to feel ashamed? Isn't it a shame that people are ashamed of their level of intelligence? Isn't it a shame that people are ashamed of their social status? Isn't it a shame that people are ashamed of their jobs? Isn't it a shame that people are ashamed of how much money they make? It's not difficult to find all kinds of standards laid out for us in this world we live in, particularly in the materialistic culture we happen to live in, in America, things that we cannot actually live up to, and thus we feel shame. When it happens, it causes tremendous bondage in the life of us as individuals, which is exactly what we see taking place in Genesis chapter 3. Maybe you heard this growing up. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. I'm ashamed of you. You know how many parents have said that to a kid? And, and, and not in an area where the child has done something wrong, like eating the forbidden fruit, but just in an area where the kid doesn't quite measure up to playing the piano better, to being the star athlete, or to getting straight A's on every report card. Why can't you be like so-and-so? And once those words get lodged in that mind, it can put that person into bondage for the rest of their lives, seeing themselves as less than, something totally untrue. But they end up believing it. I suspect every person here can think of a time without a whole lot of thought of, oh, I remember that. I, 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 I remember that time. I remember that situation. I remember that person. I remember that time my parents told me that. I remember when I was laughed at. I remember the situation. Something made you feel shame that you were somehow less than. And some of those things might even still today have you in bondage. It starts early in life, really. At two years old, kids are playing with each other. He may not be all that aware or understand all the permutations of this that much, but I tell you, three, four, and five, they know whether they're being played with like all the other kids. They know whether they're fitting in. They notice that. They begin to see that some kids are really smart. Some kids are kind of average. And maybe they even see that, hey, I'm smarter than everybody else. They begin to recognize looks. Hey, they can see magazine covers. They know what beautiful is. And they can discern whether they are measuring up. All of a sudden, there's shame and there's disgrace and fear and hiding. Listen, I am not um, totally against all advertising. Nothing wrong with having a great product and telling everybody in the world that you can find about it. I love it that you can uh, you on the internet and find out what other people who've purchased that product have to say about it. So maybe you, you know, wave yourself off of buying something because it looks like it's got horrible reviews, right? But listen, most national advertising uses subliminal shame to reel you in. It's subliminal, not front and center. For example, 
How effective would a car ad be if the company came out and said, shame on you, you're disgusting for not buying a Kia 900, right? What would you think? You'd think, how dare you? How dare you say that to me, right? You should be ashamed for not looking like this supermodel on the cover of this commercial. No way that would work, it would turn you off. You'd think, well, how dare you, right? They don't do that, they don't do it that way. They're cleverer than that but they still shame you just the same. Buy your wife or husband this Lexus or this diamond for Christmas, which they really, 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 really want. We know that. They've told us. They just haven't told you. They want it to be your idea. Message. You want to be a good husband? You want to be a good wife, right? I mean, you really do, right? You don't don't want the shame of being a bad spouse. Especially when you see the disappointment in their eyes when you don't get them this car, right? It's shame-based. How about the L'Oreal commercials? Because you're worth it. You're worth it. Yeah, message. Use this and you can look like the supermodel on the cover. We want you to think you're worth it. Because if you do, we'll make lots of money. Of course, if you don't, you just don't care anything about how you look. People will see you And they'll think you're living in a tent in the woods, you're driving a grocery cart around, and eating out of dumpsters. That's what they're going to think of you. If this happened, you'll be ashamed of yourself. Is that what you want? No, you don't want that. Use L'Oreal. Because you're worth it. Shame-driven. They will name those things that appeal to your pride, but they're basically shaming you, whether it's looks, intelligence, lifestyle, social status. All those things are thrown out as standards. Because they're money makers. And if you get a person thinking early on that way, they will spend endless amounts of money on clothes, on cosmetics, on gym memberships, on cosmetic mer- uh, surgeries, on Botox, and everything else. Some of that stuff is fine, okay, to a point. We really ought to take care of ourselves. We should comb our hair. We should bathe. We should wear clothing. But when there's a standard that you think you have to meet to live up to, that you frankly will never be able to live up to, the enemy has got you right where he wants you. And you'll spend the rest of your life being held captive to that. Take a moment and ask yourself this question. You remember the first time you were laughed at or mocked? Somebody told you you had big ears? That your hair was frizzy? Or maybe red? Right? You had red hair? They threw out a standard and your whole soul just kind of shrunk. A good friend of mine is a pastor. He still recalls the time when he was five years old in kindergarten. Not the brightest student, as he would tell you later, but uh, he was still a kid. He's in the room, and the teacher comes up to him in the classroom and says this to him loud enough for everybody in the classroom to hear. I wonder, I'm I'm just wondering, whether you have any idea in the world, any clue whatsoever, as to what everyone else in the class is doing right now. And he said, the embarrassment and shame, he said, he still remembers that and it was like, just happened five minutes ago. You know, there are really intelligent people who were told early on they were stupid and they still believe they're stupid. It just sunk in. Here's what shame does. We've already seen some of it. Genesis. It messes up relationships between people, between people and God. It causes people to hide. There are places we don't want to go anymore because we think we'll be humiliated. We're made to feel ashamed. Maybe it's a place where everybody's beautiful and you don't think you are. 
where everybody's intelligent, you don't think you are, we feel shame. You no doubt heard this, right? And my guess is most of us have said it. Well, this happened to me and I was so embarrassed, I just wanted to crawl into a hole. Almost everybody has said that. It's biblical. <laughs> it's right here in this passage. Adam and the woman hid themselves. They hid behind trees. They wanted to go anywhere to avoid the shame of being found out. When you see major public's, uh, public figures fall, the shame, the humiliation is pretty incredible, right? And thanks to the spotlight right now on sexual harassment, they're falling by the bucket loads, aren't they? Uh, we were watching TV the other day, and Jackie's, there's some guy on the news and something. She goes, she goes, every time I see a prominent man on TV now, I just think, he's going down. <laughs> he's probably going down next week. Right? But much of that is a shame as a result of wrongdoing. I'm talking specifically about shame where you didn't do anything wrong. It just comes because you're somehow not measuring up to some standard that the world sets, and shame sets in. Shame also causes a person to fear. We saw it in this verse. We probably didn't focus on it when you read it the first time. He, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid. Shame brings fear. Fear of being found out. Yeah, he was naked and ashamed, so he clothed himself. If God saw him, God would know that he, was, that he knew he was naked and was ashamed. And something was up. It all started with doing something wrong. But that's what shame does in every area, all throughout life. There's a standard a person's not measuring up to, and they feel ashamed and fearful, and God never intended that for us. Look what happens next. God says, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I, and, and I ate. I admit it. Then the Lord God turns to the woman and says, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. See, what a mess this is now, right? There's shame, there's hiding, there's fear. Now there's blame shifting. It's not really my fault. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's the snake's fault. It's anybody's fault but, but mine. See, the problem originated with a battle for the mind that they lost. And they believed the lie and it was as good as modern day ads. You guys are awesome, says the serpent. You are worth it. You deserve so much more than God's giving you right now. You can be actually like God. Message. It would be a shame. It would be a shame not to be all that you can be. And to avoid that shame, they went with it to their shame. And they're caught up in this endless cycle that will never end unless somebody steps in. When you look at this and you see the people in shame, it causes them to hide, causes them to become fearful, causes them to blame other people, causes them to lie and deceive. We see that it has an incredible power over us when we let it take root, right? Even so, the most honest person on the earth will actually lie to avoid it. Now, how about this? It's your 10th high school reunion. Big one, number 10. You've been on Facebook. You know how everyone else is looking. And you know you're not looking that way. <laughs> or you know that all your high school buddies are now uh, neurosurgeons or they're lawyers or they're real estate tycoons and you are delivering pizza for Papa John's. That's right. You've had a tough 10 years. Fallen in with the wrong crowd, got addicted to drugs and alcohol. Hey, you're clean now. But you are just kind of getting back on your feet. So are you going to the, fam you going to the reunion? Not a chance. You're not going to sit through that. What are you going to talk about? Oh, what are you doing these days? Oh, I'm a neurosurgeon. How about you? Oh, I'm 
delivering pizzas for Papa John. Let me, let me, let me tell you about my favorite toppings. Let me, okay, you're not going to probably do that, right? So you don't go. You don't go. You don't go because of shame. But if you were free of shame, you'd go. It's been a tough decade. I made some stupid mistakes. And I'm digging out. But I'm thankful that I did. And I'm digging out. I'm on a better path. Right now, I'm delivering pizzas for Papa John's. But you know what? That's not where I'm going to be in a year from now. Yeah, how about you? I'm a neurosurgeon. Hey, why don't we do this? You give me free brain surgery, I'll give you free pizza. Make an exchange. It'd be all cool. I mean, you could do that if you were free when it comes to shame. Here's something else interesting about shame. You can go to a banquet in your honor and be praised in front of a whole group of people. And you can feel pretty good about that. It's a great situation. You've been blessed. It's awesome. And then you leave, and it kind of dissipates pretty quickly because the real world intervenes again, right? But if you've been shamed publicly, it does not go away. I'm never going to go back there again, you say. They laughed at me. I'm never going to be in front of that, people, that group of people ever again. They're all so smart. They made fun of me. I, I'm, not, I'm not never going to put myself in that situation again. I, I, I will hide. I will live in fear. I will lie about why I'm not going. But I will never put myself in that situation again. Shame will do that to you. This is what we love about Scripture. It reveals truth about our real human conditions and the human heart. This mind, this actual mind of ours was never intended to handle the stress of shame. And the enemy goes right there. Goes right there every time to get us. He'll go after the unbeliever. He'll go after the believer. Just the same. And he'll do anything he can do to keep people in bondage. So apart from chemical imbalances, I think in the brain, I think a great deal of anxiety and depression is caused by shame. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm not totally immune, right? I'm fairly used to this Sunday morning gig, right? But I'm up here with all you looking at me, unless you're asleep or on your iPhones. Uh, and there's a certain amount of anxiety, especially when we've got people coming in every week, as we have the last month or so, that are first-time visitors, because I feel like, okay, okay, I got, I got, I got one shot. I got one shot at these folks to make you want to stay or somehow do something, say something to drive you away. And it's somehow it's, it's all on Dwayne. And it's easy to believe that lie. If you come one week and then you don't come back the next, somehow it's my fault. And the lie comes around, right? Dwayne, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I've got to take that thought captive. And I've got to return to remembering what God thinks about me I've got to return to remember what it is that my responsibility is and separate that from what God's responsibility is and, frankly, yours, right? We all struggle with shame to some degree. Look, show me a standard in the Bible that tells you what you're supposed to look like. Show me one standard about clothing and fashion. I don't see it. There's a few verses that talk about, you know, uh, you dress in a way that so you can separate a guy from a gal. You can separate somebody in a service industry like an army or a priest. Uh, clothes are to protect us from the cold and they should hide up your erogenous zones. Teenagers aren't here, right? Okay. None of them are about fashion. Not one is about fashion. But how many of us look at the world and what it tells us we need and you know you can't afford those $800 shoes? And you feel a bit of shame that you cannot. Well, I'm not going to the party looking like this with what's in my closet. Why not? Who cares? And who says there's a standard you have to meet to follow so rigorously? 
Well, the enemy does. Your enemy does. And he runs this world system. That's why so many people live in fear and bondage. And the truth is, when we try to end up living to the world's standards, we end up believing a lie. When you hear that voice from the enemy, you ought to be ashamed of yourself that you can't afford that outfit. You ought to be ashamed of yourself you don't make this much money. Shame on you that you're going out and your outfit's not totally coordinated. You've got to beat that back by reminding yourself what God says about you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I have in, put into you gifts and talents and skills unique in the history of the world. You are worth it. <laughs> not because of L'Oreal. Because I died for you. That makes you worth it. He thinks all day long about the good things he has in store for you. So you got to decide. Who are you going to believe? God? Or the world system? Headed by a proven liar who seeks to kill and destroy you. <laughs> I think... I think God would argue that he might be the better choice. I want to wrap this up by showing you something pretty, I think it's incredible. You may not think it's incredible, but I'll let you be the judge. Interested in knowing how to cure shame? Anybody interested in that? You just want to walk around with it. You'd be the, you, can, you can leave now if you're not interested. Okay. How to cure shame? See, shame did not exist at the beginning. Sin brought shame. And our enemy, waging war against God, uses the world system and its bents to make us feel additional shame on top of this, the sin thing, for not measuring up to these standards. We chatted about both of those angles a little bit this morning. We also know from our first scripture today in 2 Corinthians that God does not really want us as Christians wallowing around in shame. It raises the questions. Is it possible? Is it really possible to have any victory in this? I mean, it sounds awfully good, but surely Adam and this woman lived the rest of their lives with the guilt and shame of knowing that they threw the entire world, billions of people, into sin. That they cursed every single person who was born after them with a sin nature and separation from God and headed to a certain death. <laughs> I don't know about you, that's, that's pretty heavy. That's a pretty heavy verdict pretty heavy load to carry, right? A lot of shame. How do you ever recover from that kind of mess? Answer, they didn't do anything. God did something. If you were here on week one of the series, you know this, that God, after the fall of man, declared war on Satan. And he proclaimed that there would be somebody coming through the line of the woman who would destroy Satan and everything that he did, including sin and death. He would crush this person completely. And it was right after this promise that God made of this Messiah to come that we see something fascinating in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Something that Adam does is spectacularly interesting to me. He says this, the man called his wife's name Eve. She didn't have a name before that. I guess he just called her a woman I mean, it was probably lovingly, yeah. Hey, woman. I mean, what, but he, he didn't have a name. He calls her Eve. This is key. Because, and, and we're going to get told what the translation of Eve means. She was the mother of all living. Again, up to this point in the narrative, she was just the woman. But now she is Eve. Adam seems to grasp the concept. 
that God was declaring that this Messiah who was on the, on the route to come through this line of the wife would somehow eradicate Satan, eradicate sin, eradicate death, and make it possible to be restored to the way things were before sin happened. His name for her showed that he believed that God would actually do what he said he would do. And for a humanity that had just been placed under a death sentence, everybody dies. You, you, you have discovered that, right? Life expectancy, planet Earth, everybody goes. Every, nobody lives. There's nobody around that's lived a thousand years ago. They're all dead. We live long enough, we will die. We're all under that sentence. But he's, he gets it. So he calls her mother of all living because somebody coming through her line is going to be a cause for life to be springing up. Pretty clear sign of the faith he had that God would do what he said he was going to do. Then I want you to see something. The very next verse after he declares that faith. God does something. What does he do? Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. We go, aww, that's so cute. That's so nice. Because, you know, fig leaves are going to wither up and dry. They're going to crackle. They're going to be scratched. Your crotch is going to, it's going to be awful. So, skins, that's a far better, far better option. It's more than a far better option. It's not a throwaway verse. God gives this couple right here salvation and the formula for it for having the shame of sin erased and removed from their lives. For the possibility of not having to live in this world system and suffering from the shame of not measuring up. They witnessed something they had never witnessed before. God takes animals that he had created, that Adam had personally named, and he slaughters them. Blood everywhere. Must have been horrible to have witnessed death the very first time. I didn't want to gross anybody out, so I don't have a regular slaughterhouse. I got a vegan slaughterhouse. Okay, since that God is saying, okay, Adam, be very aware. Be very aware. Sin brings a death sentence. And I, as a just God, need to require a death to pay for it. We actually see this in the New Testament, don't we? Jesus talking about his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So God is saying, look, it's by your faith in this Messiah who is coming through the line of the woman who's going to take care of sin that I am declaring that the blood of these animals, because of your faith in what I said I was going to do, that your sins are now covered until the Messiah actually shows up and seals the deal for real. And you and I, right now, can resume our relationship. Not as good as it was in the garden, but it's going to be pretty good. You can be the child, I can be the father. I'll consider that your sin by your faith is forgiven. And as such, you no longer have to walk around in shame because of your sin or because of the standards of the world. And he removes Adam and Eve's feeble attempts to cover their own sin, these stupid fig leaves. And it's, it's interesting. He says they, he doesn't give them the garments that they put on. He clothes them. He puts them on them. He covers them with the skins of these animals who died in their place. All simply a picture of what Christ would eventually do. For you Bible aficionados, maybe you've wondered if you read the next chapter in Genesis, chapter 4, you see that there's uh, two kids come out, Cain and Abel. And uh, they're getting ready to offer sacrifices. And Cain's sacrifice is dissed by God. He, he rejects it. And Adam's is 
is accepted. See, what in the world is going on? Why did it happen? Easy, based on what we just read in chapter 321. Abel was the keeper of sheep. So he offered sheep, a blood sacrifice. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And he thinks, I'm not going to I'm not going to follow the pattern God just, allowed, just set up by a blood sacrifice. I'm just going to give him some of the stuff I did. I'm going to provide my own way of getting good with God. He brings a whole bunch of uh, plants that he grew, crops. I'm going to get to God my own way. I'm going to make God happy with my own way, my own way. We, we don't need no stinking blood sacrifice. He broke the picture. And when you read the rest of that account, you're going to see God come up to him and he says, look, dude, you know exactly what you're supposed to have done. Just go make it right. Go make it right and everything's going to be fine. He refused to do it. Instead, his anger and jealousy spilled over until he murdered his own brother. So, as we close, and frankly how it is with most things in the Bible, the answer to our deepest needs, the solution to our most troubling problems, the fulfillment of our greatest dreams is found in Jesus Christ. He is the only name given under heaven by which anyone on earth who's ever lived could be saved. Through which the shame of sin and the shame of goofiness with the world's standards can be removed. It's his life that's in us that gives us the strength to rid ourselves of the silly shame we feel by not measuring up to the world's standards. Because through him we can take every thought captive. We can take that thought that comes from the evil one. We can look at it. We can peer at it. We can turn it around. We can assess it. We can discern is this a stupid lie from the pit? Or is this something that's going to help me actually get closer to Christ? And then we can reject the stuff that's garbage. If you are here and you are not a believer in Christ, man, it's so exciting to see you here. But can I ask you to ponder something? Ponder what we've been saying about shame and the guilt that you feel, that we all feel, frankly, in the world. The guilt you feel, the guilt you feel about maybe having done things wrong. The shame you feel by not being able to live up to the standards this world sets. The gospel promises this, to set you free. Set you free, free from sin, because in Christ there is no condemnation. When you place your trust in Christ, you are set free, like Adam and Eve, from the penalty of sin. And as a Christian, when you start seeing what God says about you and how much he loves you, when you start seeing what God is doing for you, it also frees you from the standards of this world, and you stop being ashamed for not living up to them. It's believing by faith what God says and not some hurtful thing spoken to you by a parent or a sibling or a coach or a teacher or a coworker or anyone else that ever made you feel smaller or less than or of less value than you really are. Maybe someone told you it'll never amount to anything. Freed from those things. Let me tell you what your life will look like. You won't have to hide. You won't have to be fearful of being found out. Because everybody in this room knows we're all a mess, save for Jesus Christ. You won't have to lie. Because we're all in the same boat. I cannot tell you how much I want that for you, to be freed. Let's pray.